Hello everyone and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. This week's guest, Dr. Yao Pedro de Megalish of the University of Liverpool, is not only researching the genomics of aging, but also pitching into advanced cryonics research. He was the recipient of a 2012 Longevity Research Grant to study cryoprotectin toxicity. Listen in to find out how the research is going and learn more about the state of aging research in Liverpool and around the world. And now I would like to welcome to the program Dr. Yao Pedro Megalesh. Well, thank you very much. Wonderful to have you here on the program. Uh, first off, I wanted to know how did you become interested in aging research? I guess that was fairly early in my life. So I think I was a kid at the time and I I think it was when I understood that everyone inevitably dies of aging, even if you're lucky enough to survive other causes of death. So I, I was pretty young. And when I realized that my parents were going to die and ultimately I was going to die, I thought, well, why, why doesn't nobody do anything about it? And at the time, no, I wasn't aware of anyone actually studying aging or trying to figure out why we age or how we can stop it. So I decided I would be the first one to do that. Um, then, of course, later on, I discovered that there were a few people, uh, not too many, but there are other people also interested in studying aging and trying to solve it. But really, what's, what started was discovering my own mortality as a kid. How do you apply that discovery, discovery of your own mortality, toward your work in Liverpool? What is your main area of expertise there? Well, what we're doing here, we actually have a broad range of topics on the biology and genetics of aging. So I am in, ultimately, I'm interested in developing interventions that retard and even stop the process of aging. Um, and I think in order to do that, you have to try different approaches because you don't know which one is going to be better in the end. And you have to study different pathways and you have to study different genes. So we, we're a badly broad focus group in the sense that we work on different model systems. We work on different approaches. We study aging from different angles. I guess one of the things I'm interested in is, is large-scale approaches, what is generally called genome-wide approaches, in which you study all of the genes in the genome at the same time in a single experiment. The reason being is that even though we know a lot of genes that are associated with aging, there's still a lot of layers of our own biology that we don't understand that could be important for, for aging. And so by studying the genome as a whole or by studying all of the genes in single experiments, I think we can discover new insights that advance our knowledge towards hopefully translational uh, capabilities. And I noticed in researching for this interview that the university there at Liverpool in the integrative biology department has quite a large staff. Are there any other uh, researchers there that are interested in the rejuvenation aspects of aging and, and, and the defeat of aging, let's say? Um, apart from my lab, I'm not aware of anyone interested in, in truly curing aging. So you, you haven't rubbed off on some of the other researchers there? No, I don't think so. I think that, I mean, there there are a few people working on aging of specific systems. So, for example, there's a, a very good group working on muscle aging. And they certainly want to, you know, reverse muscle aging. They, they want to develop interventions that delay and even reverse muscle aging. I'm not sure they're really keen on curing aging as a whole. 
What, what do you think is the reason why many top-level researchers uh, haven't thought of that before or they, they don't have the desire to, say, take that next step? Sure, studying the science of aging and studying different uh, uh, animal models and cell models, and, and you discover a lot of interesting things about how different systems age, then why do you think that many do not go a little bit further and, uh, and try to think of therapies or, or try to stop aging? I think that there's, well, first of all, I think that there are researchers working on aging that do want to cure aging, and I've certainly met several. I don't think they're as vocal as I am. I mean, I have a website where I say that I want to cure aging. I think most other researchers are a bit more, uh, how do you say, shy about their ambitions, or at least not as vocal about uh, their ambitions, because they know that saying that you want to cure aging can be politically incorrect. So I think, so that's one problem. I, I think, yes, there are some researchers that want to cure aging to just don't come out about it and talk about it. Then on the other hand, there are researchers that work on aging that don't think curing aging should be an objective of the field. They just think it's too controversial. They just don't agree with the idea of curing aging for one reason or the other. Um, there's a number of oppositions to it, you know, fears of overpopulation, for example. Okay. And then I was wondering, uh, you mentioned just a little bit ago about your genome-wide approach to uh, understanding aging and perhaps developing some therapies. And I imagine, I wonder, has the advent of faster computers and uh, better data management helped in functional genomic research? Because I imagine that you are dealing with large data sets when you're studying genome-wide changes in aging. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, advances in computing power have helped enormously. We can now study dozens of genomes in a relatively short time, which was simply not, not possible just a few years ago. So definitely a lot of research in genomics, I, mean, I would say large-scale uh, approaches and data mining, is facilitated by computing advances. So yeah, I'm a big advocate, of course, for life extension and ending aging as well. And I see a lot of the new automated processes that are going on in labs and the new uh, computer systems and data processing. And it, it would tend to make me think that there are a lot of new insights that are going to be coming from aging researchers uh, around the world. And what would you say, you're very optimistic at this point as well, that with the new tools that are coming into labs, that allow research to progress so much faster? Is that going to accelerate our understanding of aging or perhaps future you know, rejuvenation therapies? I think that certainly the technological advances are what, to a large extent, drives biomedical research. A lot of what we've been learning recently about the role of different genes in aging is driven by advances in sequencing, for example. So certainly, this advances in computing power, advances in next-generation sequencing, advances in other high-throughput approaches, they will help us pinpoint with more precision and identify new genes associated with aging. And in that sense, I think it's extremely valuable. I'm less certain about advances in terms of interventions. I mean, the reality is, uh, I, I think in the past, if you look at the field as a whole, the field of aging research... We've been talking about, I mean, ever since I started working and started becoming interested in the field, that we, people have been talking about translational uh, applications of aging research and how we're going to apply it to retard aging. Unfortunately, that breakthrough still hasn't occurred. I mean, we still don't 
don't have a way of retarding human aging that, that is widely accepted. So that there's, there's two things. There's one, there is the basic understanding of aging, and that I certainly think is going to continue to increase like it has been increasing. And then there's another level, which is how are we going to apply that knowledge to, at the very least, or at the beginning, to retard the process of aging. And that's much harder, I think. Right. And in your research in functional genomics and understanding the different genetic pathways of aging, is there one particular therapy that you would be eyeing right now? Something that you've discovered about the genomics of aging. Is there one particular example that you could give where you would say, I've discovered this particular action that occurs during the aging process, and now we can apply this particular therapy or at least try it out? I don't think there's anything I can say that we've done that has immediate applications. The, the, the one thing, the one area we've been working in terms of that may have some translation applications is in identifying candidate drug targets, uh, in particularly in the context of caloric restriction. And, and this is something we've started to publish something, so some of our work, but there, there's still some unpublished results in which we're trying to identify, essentially try to identify genes that are responsible for the life-extending effects of caloric restriction. And the idea being that if we can pinpoint those genes, then we can identify also drugs that are going to target those genes and that may have benefits. I, I wouldn't say necessarily they're going to be, you know, it's not a cure for aging, of course, but it may help retard some aspects of aging in human beings. That's what I've seen as well from discussions of the recent caloric restriction research in primates where there was no lifespan extension observed, but it seemed as though the caloric restricted primates were much healthier. So even mm -hmm. if we can translate some of that CR research into a therapy for people, would you expect that health spans would be increased in humans? I think the, uh, my take on caloric restriction has been the same for a few years. And the, the, as you correctly point out, the recent results in rhesus monkeys, which are, well, there's different labs. There's one lab uh, in Wisconsin which observed a decreased mortality from caloric restriction in rhesus monkeys. And there's a lab from the NIH which didn't observe yeah. uh, a change in mortality. So first of all, I would say that the difference between those two groups, or my opinion of what explains those differences, is that the control groups in those two experiments were fed different diets, and namely the lab that didn't found an, uh, an effect in mortality from caloric restriction, their control animals were fed a much healthier diet, and they lived longer. So mm. that was my interpretation. But so going back to the impact of caloric restriction. On humans, my, my take has always been that I don't think caloric restriction is going to help everyone. I think people who already have a relatively healthy diet are not going to benefit from a caloric restriction diet. However, I do think that caloric restriction can be helpful in some cases. So, for example, the results from rhesus monkeys show that caloric restriction can have benefits on cancer. So, namely, animals under caloric restriction had a reduced cancer incidence. So that's my take. You know, caloric restriction is not going to, it's not a cure for aging, but it may have clinical applications. And if we can identify drugs that mimic the effects of caloric restriction, and we actually have a couple of candidates that we identified here, then this may have clinical applications. All right. And I noticed in your recent uh, paper about uh, some of the programmatic features of aging that you mentioned caloric restriction and how it fits into that theory about some of the programmatic features of aging. Could you explain a little bit about the idea there? 
So first of all, a bit of background. So most experts in a field, they defend that aging derives from molecular damage, uh, which is a fairly broad, broad concept. I mean, I guess some people would say it's a DNA damage, others say it's oxidative damage. But the point is that it's molecular da- damage that causes aging. And my view is that it's not just molecular damage. I do think molecular damage contributes to aging. Certainly, DNA damage and mutations contribute to cancer or to, to the increase in cancer incidence with age. But my point about that paper is that I also think that there are programmatic aspects of aging that are derived from developmental processes. So if you imagine a particular developmental, genetically regulated developmental mechanism and that is beneficial early in life, but is going to be detrimental late in life. And my view on caloric restriction is that caloric restriction essentially retards development and growth, and it retards genetically determined processes of development. And if this indeed impact on aging uh, related phenotypes, then retarding them via caloric restriction is also going to impact on aging. Okay, so that's at least one part of what caloric restriction uh, accomplishes in humans. Uh, You would speculate is that it does retard some of these uh, developmental programs. Yes. Okay. We know that you know growth is impaired and development are is slowed in animals under caloric restriction. Yes. Okay. And then let's move on to uh, some of the uh, cryoprotectant research that you've been doing that Longevity uh, has sponsored in your lab there in Liverpool. How has that been going? It's been going well. I mean, we've been trialing different conditions. I should say that what surprises me about cryopreservation is how little work has been done so far on it. There's extraordinarily few labs working on cryopreservation. I mean, aging field, if you, if you look at biomedical research in general, you know there's tons of labs working on cancer. There's some, much fewer labs working on aging. And then working on cryopreservation, there's only a couple of labs worldwide working on it. So there's really very few experiments that have been done already. And there's really a lot of potential for research in in cryopreservation. Young Um, researchers could make a big impact if they did go into the field because there are no other, I mean, there are few other researchers, correct? Exactly. There's there's a lot of, the point is that there's a lot of obvious experiments in cryopreservation that simply haven't been done. So if you look at cancer, I mean, most obvious experiments have been done because there's tons of labs working on it. But cryopreservation, there's a lot of just basic experiments that haven't been done. And we're doing functional genomics, so namely gene expression profiling of cryoprotectants to try to gather some insights on their mechanisms of toxicity. And remind Uh, me, how many uh, different cryoprotectants did you propose to test in this research for the toxicity? Well, we only proposed one. I mean, we, we've been exploring two of them, which is ethylglycol and uh, DMSO, but we only have funding to do gene expression profiling of one of them, which upon consultation with colleagues, including some people from Lunch City, we're going to go with ethylglycol. Oh, okay. Now, what you do is you have cells, right, mm-hmm. uh, that you start out with and you perfuse them with cryoprotectant. And then at that point when they are perfused, is that the point where you are going to take your gene expression profiles? That's a good question. That's something we're actually still deciding because obviously money is limited. So we only have money to do a few conditions. We only can do one cryoprotectant at a few different conditions. My idea is yes to essentially expose the the cells to the cryoprotectant and then a certain amount or maybe two or three different time points afterwards 
to do the gene expression in order to assay immediate transcriptional responses in cells and also to assay whether exposure to the cryoprotectin results in any long-term gene expression alterations. Okay, and then uh, just forgive my ignorance here, but has ethylene glycol been ever, has it, is it used in any reversible cryonics procedures, say, just in cells? Has it ever been shown that cell can be reversibly cryopreserved in just the ethylene glycol? That's a good question. I don't know uh, if it's been used just ethyl glycol. We had a, a, an issue, which is we could do gene expression profiling of a combination of cryoprotectants, just like the ones that are used in cryonics and, and in organ vitrification. But the problem is, if you do a microarray, and if you do a, a gene expression profiling of a combination of compounds, then it's difficult to pinpoint which gene expression changes are being associated with each cryoprotectant. I mean, if we had a lot of money, we could do that. We could actually do combinations of cryoprotectants, and we can do individual cryoprotectants, and we could tell the gene expression changes apart, and we could tell the different toxicity effects of the different compounds apart. But unfortunately, we, because we are restricted in what we can do, I think doing one cryoprotectant only, I think it makes more sense, both statistically and biologically, because at least then you may get some information on that particular cryoprotectant. Yeah, and I do know that, that acylglycol is used in a number of the mixtures that are used for, for organ preservation and for cryonics. Okay, yeah, so at least it's a good first step. And what you would say is that for further research in cryonics, we already talked about the fact that there's only a couple of labs really doing serious research into cryopreservation, but also besides more people, obviously more funding would be a key driver to growth in the research field, correct? Of course, but it's very difficult to get funding for, I mean, cryonics itself is quite difficult. Even cryopreservation itself, it's quite difficult. I think you know, for example, aging research, I don't think funding is that bad. You know, we, we obviously we complain, we would like to have more funding, but I don't think it's that bad. I mean, aging research is a research priority of the European Union. It's a research priority of the UK government. So there is funding for it. Cryonics and even cryopreservation are not priorities at all. I mean, I, I don't think you could get away <laughs> with a research proposal on cryonics, but even cryopreservation, it's not a priority. So it, it's very, very difficult to get funding for So for the grassroots advocates for rejuvenation and cryonics and, and such things, they should save up their, save up their money to uh, try and generate new funds for further research in the future because it doesn't look like government funding is going to be coming anytime soon. No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, the way to sell, you can try to sell cryopreservation funding to governments by talking about organ preservation, of yeah. course. Oh. That's the way to do it. But to do the experiments that I think will really advance the field of cryonics, these are not necessarily experiments related to organ preservation. And I mean, that there's other protocols for organ preservation apart from vitrification. So it's, it's a difficult sell mm. to the government. All right, uh, and then within your uh, department there at the University of Liverpool or uh, elsewhere around the world, uh, what research has got you excited? What, what are you following right now that you think uh, might prove to be a breakthrough within the next few months or uh, next year or two in aging research in particular or even cryonics research? I think that the most exciting finding in the past five years was the, the research on rapamycin being able to increase lifespan in middle-aged mice. So I thought that was quite exciting, but of course rapamycin has negative side effects. So what a lot of people are doing is trying to identify compounds that have life-extending or that have the aging effects of rapamycin without its side effects. 
So I think that's that's one exciting avenue. It's is trying to see if we can develop compounds along that way. And certainly, I, I think in terms of induced pluripotency and stem cell treatments, that's sort of a general area. Yeah, that seems uh, to be growing uh, recently anyway, but uh, no successful therapies that I've seen that really have caught my eye. Have you, have you seen anything in the stem cell area that you would say, wow, this is something great that we were expecting for all these years, and now finally it has arrived? But is, is, have you seen any research to that effect? Um, not really, no. I think that, again, the field of stem cells was something that was, was quite exciting whenever, when I joined the field, and, but it's still lacking in terms of applications. I think the induced pluripotency technique is going to help tremendously. And if you think about it, it's only been, what, eight years, mm, right. seven years since it was discovered? So, I mean, it's very, very recent. It can take 10, 20 years for a basic finding like that to start to have okay. translational applications. Okay. Is there anything uh, that you'd uh, like to promote here in closing? Uh, any papers that you have coming out soon or any conferences that you'll be speaking at? Uh, I mean, we always have papers coming out, I should say. We've been doing a lot of large-scale approaches and, again, trying to identify interesting genes associated with aging. I mean, one of the things I would say that I'm interested in as well is trying to identify genes that are important in the longevity of, say, humans when compared to chimpanzees. So genes are important in species differences in aging and longevity. So we've been doing a lot of analysis and we've developing our own algorithms to identify some genes. So we've got a, a paper coming out on this where we identify some genes, including some genes associated with DNA damage responses, which could be important in species differences in aging, which is an angle that we're interested in. Well, we'll certainly look forward to that. I know there's been a lot of interest in the ageless animals and the species differentiation as well. So something exciting to look forward to. And uh, thank you very much for joining us on Longevity Now. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. One particular thing that I hope you gleaned from this interview is that Dr. Demigalish is an outspoken advocate for curing aging while also holding a position at a major university. It was not that long ago that longevity members and others in the field of anti-aging had to hide their advocacy in order to hold a prominent position in various companies or universities. Not so much anymore. Perhaps it is time for more of us to speak out. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.